Father, we're grateful for your word that you were a speaking God. And in times of crisis, uncertainty, you are so certain. Lord, there's so much that we don't know right now about what's going on in this world. Oh, but we know you. Oh, we know your love. We know your heart. Lord, on every page of the Bible, there was crisis followed by deliverance. There was evil conquered by good. And most of all, God, there was you coming to be with us in the midst of trouble. We thank you today, oh God, that you are an ever-present Savior. You're here. You're with us. We never needed you more. We've never wanted to learn from you more. We never wanted to hear you more. Father, as I speak today, we pray for those who are suffering, those who are already grieving around the world because of loss associated with the coronavirus. We pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is begin to wipe away tears, transform tears into hope, we love these, we care for these who are suffering, who, who are in beds in the ICU unit. We pray for their deliverance. We pray, Lord, that while they suffer, they, along with their families, would come to Christ while there is time. Father, use this moment in history to turn the nations, the hearts of the people, to Jesus. While there is time, thank you for this tender knock on the door of our hearts. It doesn't feel tender, it feels somewhat violent, but it is by a tender hand that knocks on our door. So keep knocking, God, until all doors open and all hearts say yes to Christ. We pray this in the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. It is very rare that I stand before a church and can say with full confidence that I know all of you are going through a trial, and it's even more rare that I can say I know exactly what trial you are going through, but it is true today that I can say I know that every one of you are dealing with a trial called the coronavirus that has now spread to at least 115 countries of the world, and I'm sure that's more since the data I checked overnight Already 5,400 lives lost and probably again much more than that with the passing of the night. And we realize that 5,400 people with a virus is nothing compared to the 20,000 to 50,000 that die every year because of the flu. And it is tempting for those who are not reading to say what is, what is this crisis. The crisis is the uncertainty. There's things about the flu every year that we're certain there's no certainty about the coronavirus, and that demands utmost respect. So as we stated in the video that we sent out Friday, it is because of this massive atmosphere of uncertainty that we're not going to meet together this week and as many weeks as is possible in order to preserve life. We understand as believers that we will suffer in this world. That's like not a surprise to us. We understand that's part of our calling shared with all of humanity, specifically the calling of the people of God. So we're always prepared to suffer. That's, that's our calling. 
But the scripture never calls us to run toward unnecessary suffering. We as believers, if we ever run toward suffering, it's not to add to it, but it is to relieve. We run toward suffering when we relieve the suffering of other people. There is no suffering that's on the mind of believers ever as much as the eternal suffering that will come to those who are outside of the refuge and safety of Christ. That's what we give our lives for. That's when we suffer. That's when we run toward pain is when it might relieve the eternal pain of those who are apart from Christ. It is tempting, I know at times like this, to say that this is a major inconvenience. I would caution you, be careful when you use the word inconvenience as a believer. For you to worship today, you lifted the cover of your laptop while others prepared music and prepared teaching for you. I wouldn't call that an inconvenience. When using the word inconvenient, I would think of a man who was stripped of his clothes and nailed to a cross. I would think of one who left eternal glory for earthly insult. That is an inconvenience. When God allows unique struggles to come to a city, to come to a nation, come to a world, it always means that He's ready to do. He desires to do a unique work. And I hope that you're praying. I hope that's what you're about today. You're, you're about praying for that unique work. When the Spanish flu hit Washington, D.C. toward the end of World War I and I think about 5,000 people died very quickly in that city. The mayor asked that the churches not meet, and they agreed to that. Reluctantly, the pastors gathered and said, we, we don't want to not meet, but we'll not meet for our civic responsibility. They said that we want to gather as the people of God so we can pray, and it's noble as that is, I want to tell you, if your desire today is to pray for the sick and suffering of the world through the coronavirus, you can do that at your house, with your family, around your table, right now around the TV or the internet. So do it. You don't have to come here to pray. We hope that our Wednesday afternoon prayer meeting at noon, which we've been doing for several weeks now, we hope that through this pandemic, we hope that as we feel the permission of God to to invite an assembly in this building again, we hope that it will be overflowing with people who now understand the greatest thing we can do for our world is to pray. But you can do that right now, even though we're not meeting together. And we'll talk about prayer later in the text, but right now I want to look at Psalm 46. We love the book of Psalms, all 150 of the Psalms. It is, for 3,000 years, it has been the church's hymnal. It is the church's hymn book, and there is no greater hymn of all the songs to God in, Psalm, in the book of Psalms than Psalm 
46, it begins by talking about the darkest of situations. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear. The writer does not tell us in this psalm exactly what he's thinking about. A lot of speculation, a lot of commentaries written that thinking that time when Jerusalem, the city of God, was surrounded by Sennacherib and his Assyrian army, Assyria being present-day Iraq, Iran, and some portion of, of the landmass of, of Turkey, surrounding Jerusalem, making vile, cruel, hissing threats, we will wipe you out. But we don't really know what trial is mentioned here, and I'm glad we don't know. Because if you knew the trial here, you might say, well, that's not my trial. I can't relate to this text because it's not what I'm going through. I'm glad that because no trial is mentioned, you can write your name here. That when you see your world falling apart, you can say with assurance, I will not fear. The threat is so great here. The writer is imagining the unimaginable. Earthquaking so much that mountains are falling into this. Can you imagine if you're on the coast of California and you're watching all of the mountains by Highway 1 fall into the ocean? That's what his trouble is so great. I'm thinking of falling mountains into the sea. Not just buildings collapsing in a city, mountains going into, into the ocean. And yet the writer says he's not gripped at all with fear. No fear at all. Why? Because he knows the God who makes the mountains and the God who makes the oceans and that God is with us. Three times in this psalm, the writer says, says it exactly the same in verses 7 and verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our strength. What does he mean when he says the Lord Almighty? Some of your Bibles might say the Lord of hosts. It's a broad term. It includes a lot of power. It can mean the Lord uh, that's over all of earth's armies, the Lord that's all over all of heaven's armies, the Lord that's over all celestial objects, sun, moon, stars, planets, galaxies, The Lord Almighty is a reference to God's universal reign over all the universe. There's not one square inch on earth over which God does not say, Mine. Every atom of the world reports to God. The Lord Almighty is with us. The universe is 
orderly, not random. Life right now feels very random. Not just because of the coronavirus, but there are people in this precious body. There are people throughout the world and through the body of Christ among the nations that life feels anything but orderly. It feels random, pain and confusion. So that's what life feels like. That's what life looks like, random. But the scripture says it's not true. There is a Lord Almighty over all pain and suffering. And all atoms in the world report to God. It doesn't mean that I understand at all the reason, the choices that God makes to allow certain atoms, molecules, microbes, to affect bodies the way that He does. All I can tell you is this. This story of history is guided by God, and this story is not over yet. And so when the story is over and we look at all the pain and all the confusion and how God used it, we will say to the Lord in heaven, you do all things well. When the story is over. And what is marvelous to this writer it sort of shocks him, sort of surprises him in verses 7 and 11. This Lord Almighty, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, Lord over powers, he's like, this is a praise to him. If you could hear him say it, he would say, he's with us. We're tiny, tiny people, tiny earth, big, giant, massive Lord of hosts, and the writer is saying, there is no gulf between God's power and our need. He is with us. This is what shocks him. This is what surprises him. This is what stuns him. The Lord of hosts is with us. It's like the king of the universe has gotten in his chariot and ridden to our house, to our village, our town, our sorrow, and our Sin. This is what caused David in Psalm 8 to absolutely, it baffled him when he said, when I look at your heavens, God, look at all the stars, planets, the rings of Saturn, the work of your fingers, the moon, stars, what is man that you care for him? What do you care for me, God? He couldn't get over that. God is with us. And no greater promise of the withness of God in the midst of our trouble is found in the very name of Jesus that we looked at last Sunday morning. The Virgin Mary will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God has with us. What an amazing thing. Jesus Christ, Son of God, who walked with the disciples, is with you in your home right now, with your coffee, with your Bible, at your table. With your children. Jesus, if you are a lover of him, is with you. The Jesus who touched lepers 
and the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the legs of the crippled. He is touching those right now with this virus who love him. He is with us. But the second way in which the writer marvels here is that he says, not just the Lord Almighty is with us, but the God of Jacob is our, our fortress. It's interesting, of all the biblical characters he would choose to affirm, it's Jacob. It's not exactly like he started off as a saint. His name means trickster. He was a deceiver. He was willing to sell out his feeble father and his foolish brother for financial gain. And yet God came to Jacob that night when he was laying on a stony ground with all hope gone and gave him that unbelievable dream of a ladder from earth to heaven and at the top of the ladder was the face of God loving him. The God of Jacob is our refuge. You know what I love about the God of Jacob being our refuge? I love the fact of the, the teaching of the Bible. Whatever God has done for one man, he will do for every man. I mean, you look at names like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Paul, Peter, whatever God was for them, he will be for you if you want him to be. He was a refuge for Jacob and he will be a refuge for you. I love this word fortress, refuge, castle, whatever comes to mind when you think of refuge. You get inside the refuge of God and you cannot be harmed by anything. Death may take your life, but death cannot separate you from God. Death can only take you into the eternal presence of God, the eternal city of God. Death cannot take away your relationship, your eternal relationship with God, because God is your fortress forever. God is my fortress and my refuge. There's going to be so many storms that come to our lives. Great pain, great loss, even death. Coronavirus right now is one of those storms. And it causes great sorrow. And we grieve for the 5,400 who have died. Those who will die, those who are dying now, those who will die today. But I praise the Lord for every single one who died that's in the shelter, the refuge, the fortress of Jesus Christ. They are with the living God right now. They're sheltered by the eternal love of God. And God said he will be that for every one of us. David said in Psalm 23, even though I walk through Death, I'm going to die. You were with me in the dying process, transporting me from agony to glory. I read an interesting article this, this week, and I, I 
so many things about the coronavirus. I really appreciate the, the author's point made in this quote. COVID-19, that's simply the coronavirus that happened in 2019 is what's named that. COVID-19 is a deadly, serious global pandemic, and all necessary precautions should be taken. But nothing has really changed in the world. Just because scientists have told us of one more thing in this world that can produce death. That's all scientists have done this week. It's not like they told us we're going to die. We come into this world with a death sentence on us. It's not a surprise to us. It could be cancer. It could be a car wreck. It could be a coronavirus. A thousand other possibilities. But we should never be surprised by death. Instead, we should be prepared for death because it's coming to each one of us. In that same article, the author quoted C.S. Lewis, a great article that he wrote in 1948 with the rise of the atomic bomb. This is what C.S. Lewis says about how to live in an atomic age. Fantastic article. Love C.S. Lewis's quote here. When death comes to the Christian, may it find us doing sensible things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, not huddled together like frightened sheep. So I beg you today in this body that I'm familiar with at Hope Point and those who are listening far beyond this city by way of the web, would you flee to the shelter, to the castle, to the refuge of Jesus Christ while there is still time, while you are still alive. What I particularly love about this psalm is the contrast between worldwide panic and the peace of the believer, the follower of God. Psalm 46, though its waters, though the ocean's waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Don't you love the contrast here in this verse, these verses? Roaring, restless, violent ocean contrast, gentle, flowing, peaceful river. That's the difference between belonging to the world and having no hope at a time like this and belonging to Jesus Christ and having all the hope in the world. And that is the source of our river-like peace is the eternal hope of Jesus Christ. This river is an amazing, it's an amazing mention by the writer in Psalm 46. He's writing to the people of Jerusalem that are surrounded by Sennacherib's army. 
And he said, there's a river that's going to make you glad. Well, there's only one problem. There is no river in Jerusalem. Of all the major cities in antiquity, it's interesting that Jerusalem did not have its own river. It had a little trickle of water, a little stream outside the temple that went into the pool of Siloam. No river. And so the writer here, he looks to the right at Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he sees the mighty Euphrates River. And then he looks west at Cairo, Egypt, and he sees the mighty Nile River. And he looks at Jerusalem, and there is no river to look at yet. But there will be because one day the Son of God walked into Jerusalem and said in John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to do in your heart what no earthly river can do, what no earthly city can do, what no earthly event can do, what no earthly person can do, what no earthly experience can do, and that is satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. He is the river of life, and the most wonderful thing about knowing Jesus Christ is if you drink in his love, if you drink in his river of salvation, his river of forgiveness now, there will be a river one day that you will sit beside that will trump all the rivers of the world. And we see that. John saw that at the end times. Revelation 22, John said, Then the angel showed me the river It's in heaven. For all those who have died, who know Christ, they're looking at this now. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The Euphrates River, gone. The Nile River one day will be gone. All the great rivers of the world one day will be gone. And in the end, only God's river will exist. Only God's city will exist. Only God's people will exist because of their purchase by Jesus Christ. Again, notice in this psalm the severity of the situation in contrast with the the power of God to overcome it. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. God lifts his voice and... The earth melts. I mean, look at this. Nations could be translated, nations are violent. This is really talking about kingdoms fall. This is talking about one cruel tyrant after another abusing his people And those he conquers, one after another, cruel kings rise and cruel kings fall. 
these situations look to us unstoppable. When kings, like in Venezuela, tyrants, madmen, rule over the people and bring destruction, these situations look unstoppable. They look unstoppable. Coronavirus can look unstoppable. And then God steps in and everything changes. Nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall, God lifts his voice, and the earth melts like a candle. The picture here is of you, how much effort would it take for you to hold a candle in your hand and put it inside your oven, turn that oven on, and the candle melts. That's how much effort it takes for God to transform the world. Martin Luther took Psalm 46 and made it the battle cry of the Reformation by writing from Psalm 46, one of the greatest hymns of the church, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because he was on the run when he confronted the most evil powers of the day that were persuading all of Europe to turn from God and to believe lies about the Lord. Luther confronted them translated the scripture into the German language and set all of Europe free in the Reformation. And they wanted to kill him. And he went on the run and he hid in castles. He hid with the help of friends. And while he was hiding, he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. I love these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark or an An impenetrable wall that will never fail. So a mighty fortress is our God, a wall never failing, our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, Satan, does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, we know that, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. No match for Satan in this, anybody who's listening to this. No match. We're no match for him. Though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him which is exactly what the writer of Psalm 46 said. One word from God and everything changes. All evil, all evil powers, all evil rulers, all evil people are gone. So here's my plea for you. If God's tongue is so strong that with one word, He changes the world. Could we make a new commitment to use our little tongues to rededicate our life in prayer to talk to God whose mighty voice can change everything with one command? Why would you not? Why would you forfeit the privilege of prayer? Your little words 
to bring about the life-changing force of God's one word. Oh, that we might pray to God as never before for this nation and world. So God does have the ability to help you, but you need to understand from Psalm 46, he's going to help you, but only in his time. Psalm 46 says, God is within her, the city, his people. God is there. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. So when is God coming? At the last moment is when he comes. At the break of the day, the dawning of the day, sunrise. Ancient people used to divide the night into four periods. Six to nine at night, period one. Nine to twelve, period two. Twelve to three, period three. And the last period, which is what the writer refers to, from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is called the break of day. And that's when God says he will come at the last hour, but not before. That's when he came for Israel, surrounded by Assyria, an army, and Sennacherib's threats. In the middle of the night, the people thought all hope was gone, and look what happened in the morning. 2 Kings 19, that night the angel of the Lord went out, put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp, and when the people got up, when? Break of day. That's when God comes. Next morning, there were all the dead bodies. God saves his people in the last hour, the fourth watch of the night. Why does he do that? Why does God wait till the fourth hour to save us? Well, the answer is for your deepest joy. If God came earlier, you would be tempted to think that it was your strength that had saved you. Your heart would not be reliant on God. Your heart would not overflow with gratitude for God. But when all hope is gone, He comes and He saves you. And you will experience a much deeper joy when He saves you, when all hope is gone, as if He had saved you any time previous to that. God will save you at the right time. Please don't quit waiting on God. I wonder how many people, countless, tens of thousands of people throughout history have given up on God before the fourth watch of the night. He is an on-time God, but he will not come early, nor will he come late. I think the coronavirus right now is altogether an issue of timing, the timing of God. There is a reason for this atmosphere of uncertainty. 
and vulnerability. We are a nation that is proud of its strength, unashamed of its sins, and with the rise of one virus, all boasting is gone. We do not deserve to be helped by God. We do not praise Him for the bounty we enjoy, and much worse, we sin against the hand that gives us everything we enjoy. Through our sin, we slap His generous hand, and we expect that hand to keep giving all of these blessings. And now, for one moment in time, God has withheld His hand that we might see how vulnerable we are when the hand of the favor of God is not resting on our world. So what do you do with all this? You turn to God in humble desperation and reliance, confessing that all of our needs will be met by His hand and not by the strength of our hand. Look at Psalm 46 verse 8. Come and see. When I'm reading this, notice all the attention on who the deliverer is. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. And He burns the shields with fire. No human victor is mentioned in this psalm because there is no human being that can produce victory in the midst of such calamity. Only God can do that. And He will never move and show mercy until we confess the strength is not from within us. Once upon a time, there was a rooster in a barnyard. Every time the sun came up, the rooster crowed. And when the rooster crowed, the hens woke up, the sheep woke up, the cattle woke up, and the farmer and his family woke up. And the rooster began to take note of that. Every time I crow, somebody wakes up. People Animals, somebody wakes up. But one day he noticed the timing of the morning in which he he crowed that the sun also rose when he crowed. He noticed that one day and the next day and week after week. And he concluded he did not crow because the sun rose, but the sun rose Because he crowed. That's what's happening to our nation right now. We live as if the sun rises because of us. We live as if we have no need of God. That our success is due to our strength. 
Our winning is due to our wisdom. We have become so self-consumed and so self-reliant, we fail to marvel what life would be like without the generous hand of God that commands the sun to rise. There's no doubt what the purpose is of this virus and this trial. It is God, once again, in His patient kindness, pleading with this world, receive my help and my salvation that you so desperately need. Our prosperity is not determined by the strength of our hands, and our fate is not determined by the strength of a virus. All that we have and ever will be is due to the grace and power of God. So we plead for this world to turn to God while it is still daytime before the darkness comes forever. One last word. We'll close with the most familiar of all the verses in Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Several different ways to translate this verse. Some of them may take a little liberty, but I like the one that says, Be still and let your hands hang down. Stop struggling, fighting, resisting, figuring out. Let your hands hang down and surrender to your need for God. Watchman Nee, great writer, mystical writer, tells of the time that he lived in China He was leading a conference there with 20 other Christians. One afternoon between sessions, they all went swimming. And one of the attendees began to struggle, cramping up in his arms and his legs. In the lake, he began to go under. Watchman Nee Nee knew that one of the other conference attendees was a a great swimmer, and told him, go save our friend. And when he gave the order, his friend just stayed on the dock. The man struggled and fought, flailed. Still nothing from the great swimmer. And watched him. And right when he went under, he dove from the dock and saved his life. When it was all over, Watchman Nee berated his friend and said, Why did you wait so long? He said, I had to wait until he stopped flinging his arms or he would take both of us down. God cannot save you until you stop resisting and stop fighting, stop rebelling, and let your arms hang limp and say, God, save me. And that's when he saves.
when you stop fighting and surrender all into his care. Whatever forces are at work in your life, you'll never know the relieving, strengthening, cleansing peace of God until you stop fighting against him and surrender to his love and his salvation. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ leapt from the dock of heaven when you were drowning in your sin. And he dove into the waters of our guilt, the waters of our sorrow, the waters of our mess. And with a blood-stained hand, grabbed your hand and brought you to the eternal safety of the shores of heaven. And today his offer to all those who would believe today, would you take the hand of Christ and let him save you? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we see you today. Actually, we see you 21 centuries ago leaping from heaven with all of its safety and splendor, diving to the mess and the darkness of this world. For 33 years, you, Emmanuel, God, were with us. In the carpenter shop, you were there with your hammer, working beside others who held their hammer, taking the, the furniture that you made to neighbors, to customers in Nazareth. You, Jesus, you lived among us. You drank water, you ate meals, you laughed. You went to funerals. You went to the synagogue. Talked with your brothers and with your mother. You were with us. And then one day you went to the multitudes. You started teaching. Started performing miracles. Yes, you were with us. You were with the sick. You were with the dying with the blind and the deaf to demonstrate your excessive, extreme, prodigal love. You were with those who are far from God. You were with those who are far from hope. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus, you went on to walk the Calvary Road, leaving your disciples that night leaving the upper room through the darkness, through the loneliness, into the garden you prayed. And there with the disciples, you were with us, praying drops of blood until the angels came and were with you, strengthening you that you might be fully with us. When they nailed you to the cross, And there on the cross, you were with all of humanity, with all the world, with all of our sin, you were with us. On the right and the left, we were there with our sin, with our guilt, with our shame, 
Couldn't do anything about it. We did it. And you were with us, dying for it, liberating us from it, freeing us from its hold on us, cleansing, purging with your blood that flowed from Jerusalem to Spartanburg to Saigon, from America to Europe, from Italy to Korea, to all hospitals, to all cemeteries. For all those who believe, you're with us. You rose from the dead and comforted your disciples who left you. They were not with you. They abandoned you. And you came to them to say, I am with you. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Oh, we're filled with overwhelming praise to you, Jesus, that you are God, Emmanuel, with us. And now with extended hand, reaching our powerless hands, would you save us? Would you save us? Would you save the world from this virus? Would you give us what we don't deserve, mercy? Would you give us what we need, grace? Would you do this that we might thank you for your splendor and your kindness that delights in saving those who are perishing. Save us. Save us. Save us, Jesus. From our sorrow, from our sin, in your name I pray. Amen.